This week on Myths and Legends, we're back in the tales of 1001 Nights. You'll see that the best outcome to any legal problem is free honey cakes, and that if you're looking for a free trip, just sob uncontrollably in the living room of a genie until they get tired of all that and teleport you across the world. The creature this week is the Irish King of the Cats, a cat the size of a cow who hates poetry. This is Myths and Legends, episode 266. Good night and good luck. This is a podcast where we tell stories from mythology and folklore. Some are incredibly popular stories you might think you know, but with surprising origins. Others are stories that might be new to you, but are definitely worth a listen. If you didn't know about 1001 Nights, it's an anthology loosely held together by a framing narrative. The main story is that a king caught his queen cheating on him, so he had her executed. Then, so he would never get hurt again, he would marry a woman and then execute her the following morning. This went on for a little while until he married Shahrazad, the daughter of his vizier, and she started a story. That story had another story inside of it, and so on and so forth. So Shahrazad always left off with a cliffhanger at dawn so she could live to see another day. We catch up with the couple nearly three years into their marriage, and one of them is looking to make a change. Shahrazad and Sharyar, the sultan, heard the baby cry. Shahrazad was reviewing her notes and didn't look up, but she could tell that her husband, the sultan, wasn't moving. So, you gonna take care of that, or... The sultan just tossed out there. You can have the story tonight, or I can go soothe the baby, Shahrazad informed him. The sultan grumbled. If he knew having a baby would cut to story time so much, it's our third, dear. You knew. Besides, have I ever not delivered? I mean, I was telling stories during delivery. Three times. You can change a diaper she said. The sultan reluctantly got himself out of bed and went to go care for the baby. And yeah, they had been married for nearly three years. 989 nights, to be exact. She was scared in the beginning. I mean, her husband had married and murdered a lot of women, but she managed to keep him hooked with her nightly tales within tales, and she would leave him hanging at the end of each night, so he ugh, didn't leave her hanging the next day. And I'm just kidding, he would likely chop off her head. And it worked. They had three children together, and the nightly talks made them closer than ever. But Shahrazad wanted more. She wanted to believe that the sultan could change. That he had changed. That he loved her. His wife and the mother of his children, more than her entertainment value. So, this story was it. It would last about 12 nights, rounding them out to 1,001 total. But that would be it. She would end it and see if the man she married had changed at all. She thought she had seen him grow, but could she bet her life on it? She watched him return from the nursery and smiled. She liked her odds. He came back and put his arms around her. All right, baby's down. Now where were they? Oh yeah, the cobbler, right? He had that terrible wife, the woman who everyone called dung because she was just the worst and her husband wanted to buy poison to poison her? <laughs> Reminded him of his exes. Ah, he loved the terrible wife stories. 
Art imitates life, am I right? Shahrazad swallowed hard. All right, this was still the last story, but she was feeling less and less great about her odds. Maruf, Maruf was living on a prayer. As in, he was praying to Allah that he could make enough money for some honey cakes for his wife, or else she would make his life miserable. And this isn't some chauvinistic, take my wife joke, though the story itself is inherently misogynistic. Boo! Just tell the stories! The sultan broke in, interrupting Shahrazad. He rose, went to the wall where he had placed five gold stars, and sliced off a quarter of one. He shook his head and sat back down. How'd you like that? Maybe he'd get some friends together. They'd talk about how much they hated the stories and take a big chunk out of that thing. Shahrazad learned a long time ago not to engage. Some people, a very small number, were never happy. And the sultan was just looking for a fight. She continued on. To continue on, this story is inherently problematic, but also people can just be mean, vicious people and... The wife was one of those. She told the cobbler, Maruf, that he better spend whatever money he made today on honey cakes for her, or else she would make his life terrible. As terrible as the day they were married, and he fell into her hands. Which, yeah, that's just a blatant threat. In fact, the cobbler sat in anxiety all day long, fearing what his wife would do if he came home without honey cakes. His anxiety was all the worse because, all morning, no one needed his cobbler services. He prayed to Allah again, closed up shop, and went to the baker. Oh, dude, yes, the baker said with a hug. The cobbler dried his eyes. Wait, the baker would give him some honey cakes? On credit? The baker said absolutely. He wouldn't make the cobbler pay right now, but honestly, if someone is making you dread going home because you fear their reaction, that's an abusive situation. The cobbler needed to get out. The baker went back behind his counter. He had the cakes and... Oh, okay. Well, uh, good news, bad news. The good news was that he could still do it. The bad news was that he was out of actual honey. Would molasses work? The cobbler could feel the old dread creeping up his neck. She would notice. Yeah, absolutely, the cobbler cried out. What was he going to say? The man was giving him cakes today for nothing. The story tells us that the cakes looked amazing. A cake fit for a king. The baker handed them over. That would be 15 nuffs, or half coins, and that was selling them at cost. The cobbler could just pay him back whenever. Seriously, do not worry about it. He should only pay the baker back if he had more than enough. Then he sighed. Good luck. Maruf had a couple of customers the rest of the day, and he went home, almost forgetting that the cakes weren't real honey. He was reminded that they weren't when his wife, taking one look at the cake in her hand, threw it in his face, telling him to get her some honey cakes. He said he'd try, but he couldn't. They didn't have the money. She didn't like that. She grabbed his hair and slammed his head against the wall, a tooth flying from his mouth. He pushed her to break free, and she screamed. She grabbed his beard, holding him captive there, and screamed aloud that he was attacking her. The neighbors were not buying any of it. All the windows were open, and they knew way more than they wanted to about this couple's marriage. They looked at the battered and bleeding party, Maruf, and told Fatima, the wife, that they all knew that she was bullying him. Please break it up. That night, 
Her abuse was verbal, constantly. Maruf ate the cakes and tried to sleep. So I know very, very little of law enforcement in medieval Islamic society, but the Qadi, the judges, seemed very chill in this situation. What the wife learned from the previous night was that she needed to look the part, so she smeared some blood on herself and went to the judge. The guy went around the neighborhood questioning the neighbors and came back with cash in hand. When Maruf was detained for questioning, he feared the worst. But the judge met with the husband and wife and said that since the disagreement had begun over honey cakes, maybe it could be resolved by honey cakes. Good guy judge gave them enough cash to go buy some honey cakes. Now, yeah, honey cakes were a symptom of a much bigger problem in the marriage, but it kind of wasn't up to the judge to resolve those. And when dealing with the medieval legal system, maybe any legal system, walking away with free honey cakes is really the best case scenario. Unfortunately, the judge might be generous, but his guys, not so much. I'm not 100% sure how their pay situation worked out, but my guess is that they got some cut of the legal ruling against the accused. But since Maruf hadn't been ordered to pay anything, well, they had a problem. Since it was their job to detain, they did just that. They dragged Maruf back to his workshop and ordered him to pay for their services to the judge. And he had to give up half the dinar the judge had given him and quickly sell all of his tools at cut-rate prices to avoid getting roughed up by the judge's guys. Then, after they left, more judge's guys came knocking. You see, unhappy with the first ruling of free honey cakes, Fatima went to another judge, who just straight out dismissed the case. Unfortunately, his legal fees, aka the group of burly dudes, needed to be paid as well. One very tense conversation, and a whole lot of guys ransacking his store later, and the cobbler, Maruf, was beside himself with anguish. Maruf still had friends, though, and the baker popped his head in the door, telling Maruf that, uh, hey, some guys came looking for him. Maruf gestured all around to the nothing he now had. Yeah, they, they found him. The baker said, unfortunately, no, it wasn't those guys. These were from the bailiff. Fatima had made a complaint against him to the high court. Those guys don't mess around. He liked Maruf, so he was giving him a heads up. Maruf should probably get out of town. Like, now. Maruf looked around. Ugh. He had nothing. His business was gone. He didn't have the tools to practice his trade and lacked the money to buy more. He couldn't go home. Yeah, he was going to do it. He knocked on back doors throughout the market, trading what last money he had left for bread, cheese, and traveling clothes. At nightfall, he left town with only the pack on his back. He didn't know where he was going to go, but it had to be better than where he had been. Quickly challenging that point, the rain started. It was winter, and this story takes place in Egypt. And while it doesn't look like they get a ton of rain in the winter, it's definitely more than the summer. And it was enough to force Maruf, after he trekked through the night, into some ruins for shelter. Even his attempt to flee had been a failure. Maruf was just having a hard time. And seeing as he was the only one around for miles, he decided to just have a good cry. Just let it all out. Except 
he wasn't alone. The ruins might not have had doors, but that didn't mean that the house wasn't occupied. It wasn't until hour two that the genie in the corner finally cleared his throat. Maroof sat up with a start. Oh, hi, sorry. He was, he was Maroof. The genie sat there wide-eyed. Cool, nice. Good to put a name with the sobs. Maroof grimaced. Oh, so the genie heard. All that? Yeah, the genie grimaced. He said, look, it wasn't his place, but things sounded like they were really bad for the guy. He wanted to help, and he was moved to pity, beyond just wanting to get the guy out of his house, though he really did want to get the guy out of his house. He said it sounded like Maroof had some issues with his wife, to put it lightly. How about the genie takes Maroof to a far-off land, where she could never follow, and was also super, super far away from the genie's living room? Maroof said that that sounded fantastic. The genie smiled, and Maroof blinked. He was standing on the foothills of a mountain, his clothes flapping in the wind. Down the mountain road, a city glowed in the night. The genie pointed up ahead. If Maroof entered that city, his wife wouldn't follow him. The genie was hopeful for the man, but also eager to get home where a crying stranger wouldn't be wailing in his house. The genie disappeared, and Maroof made his way toward the city at the foot of the hill. It was nice of the genie to help Maroof along. Also, he kind of did literally the bare minimum for helping him. He dumped him in a faraway land, away from his home, without provisions or even telling him where he was. In the morning, when Maroof made it to the city, the people gathered around the cobbler, whose clothes looked different. And they laughed at him, taking him for a fool when he informed them that he had been in Cairo the previous morning because it was a year's journey between the two places. It didn't really help when he told them all that he had been taken here by a genie. But Maroof lucked out when a merchant rode by, recognized his clothes, swatted the gawkers away, and invited Maroof to his home. An hour later, Maroof looked in the mirror. Wow, this was a change. The merchant nodded, yeah. Maroof cleans up nice. All right, Maroof was dressed in the garb of the merchant, who didn't have any cheap clothes. So Maroof looked like a prince. He sat down for some food and found that the merchant actually knew Cairo really well because he had grown up there. He was Ali, and he and the apothecary, when they were both children, used to steal books from the Christian church and sell them for cash so they could buy treats. When the Christians complained and threatened to raise the issue with the judge, the apothecary's father beat both of them. Good times. He said he struck out on his own at seven years old, which, I mean, even by medieval standards, this was super young, and his journeys had taught him something. That, quote, this world is all swagger and deceit. Maroof said that he didn't get it. And the merchant stood and started pacing the room. The merchant said that the former cobbler used to be a cobbler, right? Unless the former being the latter didn't mean the former. Maroof was still trying to parse out if that sentence made sense when Ali, the merchant, continued. And how had being a cobbler worked out for him? Maroof nodded. Yes, uh, he had a crying heart-to-heart -heart with a genie after he went on the lamb and now he didn't know where he was. You can just say, not well, Ali helped. And if Maroof told people he was brought here by a genie? Yeah, they laughed at me. A lot, you saw that, Maroof informed Ali. Ali said, okay, so, since Maroof could expect things to go at best as well as Cairo, why keep being who he was? No one knew his name here, his history. He could be anyone. 
Ali asked if Maruf knew how a teenager grew into the merchant Maruf saw before him. He wandered for years, from city to city, until he found one where people were generous enough to lend to him and naive enough to believe his story. He came into town and talked to the right people, asking them to help him find a spot for his store. He had a lot of goods coming into town. They helped him, and then, based on the descriptions of what absolutely was not on the road behind him, lent him 50 dinars. He used that money to actually buy goods, turned a profit on those, paid back the lenders, and built his business from there. With a lot of business acumen and a little luck, he was able to grow into the merchant that was going to help Maruf. Maruf already looked the part in the fancy clothes, and he handed Maruf a thousand dinars, 20 times what teenager Ali had. All Maruf had to do was make a show of giving those away to the poor. When the other merchants saw him, and when Ali the merchant talked him up, they would be more than willing to lend him cash before his donkeys laden with tens of thousands of dinars made it to the city. In the meantime, Maruf could invest the cash, make profit enough to pay back his lenders, and then build on the excess. Maruf said, but he didn't have donkeys laden with cash coming? Oh, no, okay, deceit and swagger, got it. Okay, Maruf, uh, I'm gonna level with you, bud. You're really bad at this. Ali said, pacing the floor. He said he was homeless at seven years old, but helping Maruf out was more stressful than that. Maruf, with his silken clothes and reassuring smile, patted Ali on the back and told the merchant to relax. Once his cash came in, he will be able to pay Ali back. Ali snapped. Maruf didn't have any cash coming in. Ali had taught him that lie. He was really good at the first part of the plan, taking the money and giving it away, but the merchants, the merchants were starting to get suspicious. He had given away 60,000 dinars in a month. The merchants' money, they saw that. They were confused as to why he was taking money from them just to give it away. Ali put his own reputation on the line for Maruf. Maruf just smirked. Well, tell them it wouldn't be long now. His cash was coming in soon. The merchant was close to pulling out his own hair before he shrieked, rushed from the house, and screamed that he was going to go lodge a complaint with the king. I think that this Maruf guy might be a con man, the king heard. The monarch scowled at his servant. Well, I'm not paying you to think, he grumbled. The man said, well, I mean, I'm your vizier, your chief advisor, so you kind of 100% are? But this dude has no cash coming in. And he owes the merchants in town 60,000 dinars. And that's in like 7th century amounts. In 2022, the weight of gold alone would put them north of 11 million US dollars. The king asked, uh, what's a US and what's a dollar? You know what? Doesn't matter. He had a feeling about people, and the rumors he heard about Maruf? He thought Maruf was good people. A straight shooter. Also, the vizier had to observe the world, read into people's actions. No one, except the absurdly wealthy or the incredibly inept, would borrow that much money just to give it away. If he was a con man, he would have just taken the money and run. The king wanted a piece of that action when Maruf's boat or donkey came in. 
So he was betrothing his daughter to this stranger from half a world away on the basis of an unverified story and so many unpaid bills. The vizier said that, okay, now that was a bad idea. (laughs) The king said if it was so bad, would he have gone ahead and done it before talking to anyone? Just then, the king shoved the vizier to the side and held his arms out wide. There he is, son. Maruf uh, was confused, but pleasantly hugged the king. His new dad. Okay. We'll see Maruf continue to make poor decisions, but that will be right after this. Oh my gosh, I'm adopting a puppy right now, but I realize what's at home. Oh no, I have nothing. Well, except unconditional love. But yeah, no crate, no pee-pee pads, no dental chews for his little puppy teeth. Before I doubt myself as a new parent, I just get Instacart to deliver everything from PetSmart. Easy, just like raising a puppy is going to be, right? Get pet essentials from PetSmart with Instacart. Visit instacart.com to get free delivery on your first three orders. Offer valid for a limited time. $10 minimum per order. Additional terms apply. If you own a vehicle with less than 200,000 miles and have an auto warranty about to expire or no warranty coverage at all, listen up. CarShield has a low-cost month-to-month vehicle protection plan that covers more parts than ever. Visit carshield.com audio to find out how you could pay almost nothing for covered auto repairs. Drivers who activate this vehicle protection today will also receive free roadside assistance, free towing, and car rental options at no additional cost. Get your free quote today at carshield.com audio. That's carshield.com audio. So Maruf was about as good at being a prince as he was at being a merchant, and the king was at being a king, because on the assurance that donkeys were forthcoming, a sentence Maruf repeated at least a dozen times a day the exact same way every time, so it pretty much has to be true, the king gave, nay, insisted that Maruf have access to the royal treasury for some walking around money, which was fine. The king had a ton of money and was more than happy to lend it out to family, until there was no more money to lend. The vizier walked into the throne room, definitely not trying to mask an I told you so smirk, when he informed the king that the kingdom would be insolvent in 10 days time. The king demanded to know how all this was possible. And before the vizier informed him that the advisor told him that this exact thing would happen, the king lighted on a plan. To figure out what was really going on, he would have his daughter suss it out it would find out who this Maruf guy was. The problem? Well, the princess actually loved her husband. The story details their love, like really details it. A lot of folklore is tastefully reserved when it comes to the evening activities of newlyweds. This story was not. Suffice to say, they were into each other. She shut the door and told Maruf that she knew. He wasn't actually a merchant and the bags of gold weren't coming. If he leveled with her right now, she could maybe protect him, but he needed to come clean. Maruf started him with his reassuring, oh, the bags are on the way, but saw that his wife wasn't buying any of that. So he hung his head and told her everything. The lie was bad, real bad. He took money from one merchant to take money from all of them, and then he took money from the king. 
The wife nodded. All right, all right. So he was running a Ponzi scheme, taking money from bigger and bigger investors to keep the lower ones happy. Uh, there was maybe a way out of that. Maroof said, kind of. Except he hadn't paid anyone back, anything. And they were all starting to get real suspicious. The princess, Dunya, blinked. Uh, wow, okay, yeah, he was bad at this. She sighed. All right, all right. She still loved him. And if he had been only slightly better at this, or had any plan at all, he might be a con man for the ages. She was going to help him. He's been robbed, the princess said with a shrug. The king was nonplussed. But, but all that money. The princess said, yeah, that's what her husband had said. Turned out sending the equivalent of a hundred million dollars of gold and jewels across the desert on the backs of donkeys wasn't all that safe. She had seen the messengers themselves. They had 500 guards, but they were attacked by 2,000. Anyway, Maruf had taken off into the desert to see what he could do, to see if he could pull back any money from the bandits. And while Dunya, the princess, was ensuring that he wouldn't be executed for fraud, Maruf was riding off to somewhere? He had nothing but the clothes on his back. But those clothes, well, still fancy. He was starving when he made it to the outskirts of one of the villages, but the peasant farmer there recognized him as a servant of the king and offered him a meal, a bowl of lentils. The man bowed low before the servant of the king and left his plow to go get the food. Maruf actually felt kind of bad. This guy left his ox and plow out here and was losing half a day's work to feed Maruf. The least Maruf could do was bring the ox back. He dismounted his horse and started leading the ox back home. So we live in Ohio, where almost half of our state is farmland, but I've never plowed a field. I assumed the lines that go up and down are important, but Maruf didn't and just cut the shortest path across the field. About halfway there, he snagged something with the plow. It was a marble slab with a golden ring on the top of it. Maruf got the dirt off of it and found himself looking down at the thing. He scanned the horizon for the farmer, grasped the golden ring, and lifted the slab. For a three-by-three three slab of pure marble, it lifted pretty easily. They always do in folklore for some reason. And the musty air hit Maruf as he looked on the passageway down into the dark. Torches sparked to life on either side of the hallway, and Maruf found himself in a large circular room with five chambers branching off from it. The first four were, quote, filled top to bottom with gold, emeralds, sapphires, and diamonds, respectively. Maruf breathed. His money problems were solved. Well, <laughs> for about ten minutes until he figured out a way to mess that up, but figured out he would. In the fifth room, at the end of the hall, held a casket. Now, personally, if I found a secret tomb filled with riches and a room holding a casket, I would probably pass on the casket. I don't need to release a vampire or a lich or something from its thousand-year slumber. There were a couple of reasons why Maruf approached the casket, though. One, it's Maruf. I think it's safe to say he makes decisions before even he understands what he's doing. And two, the casket was the size of, quote, a lemon, which, okay, yeah, does literally minimize my vampire and lich concerns. 
he popped open the tiny casket, which, <laughs> that's a roll of the dice right there, to find a ring with um, something engraved on it. It was a bit dirty, though, and Maroof took out his cloth and rubbed it a bit to see what the ring said, and yeah, it was a genie. With sadly very few 90s pop culture references, a voice called out, quote, Here I am, master. Whatever you ask will be given to you. Then the bean offered to build a town, destroy a city, or dig a canal, which one of those things was very much not like the others. The genie explained that he was the lord of the jinn, and bound in service to whomever owned the ring. Maroof maybe had some sweat beat up on his forehead, in hopes that the genie wasn't up on property law, and that Maroof wasn't technically the owner but I heard in a children's movie once, when I was young, that possession is nine-tenths of the law. And despite a quick Google telling me that that's actually false, the saying has and continues to make up pretty much my entire knowledge of property law. Same with the genie, who didn't care whose land he was on, just who was holding him. He said that Maroof was his master, and he could have whatever he wanted now. Just don't rub him twice in a row, or else the ring and the lord of the jinn would burn up completely. Maroof didn't have quite as many questions as I would have, like, how small of an interval is twice in a row, and can you clean the thing or will it catch fire, and what constitutes a rub? Anyway, the genie explained that he used to work for an emperor, but in Ozymandias fashion, the empire fell, everyone forgot about it, and the genie was left here among the empire's treasure, while the earth reclaimed the land. And real quickly, genie, or jinn in folklore, usually don't have a three wishes rule. You get as much as you want, and Maroof, not wanting to waste anything, or I guess leave anything for the farmer, whose land helped Maroof free himself from the consequences of his own actions, asked the genie for help clearing out those rooms. And the genie, because he was forced to oblige, helped out. The genie summoned his own 800 sons, transformed some into mules and some into boys to lead the mules, and the group got to work. They weren't gone before the peasant farmer returned with a bowl of lentils, and he arrived to find, like, way too much livestock laden with gold, and Maroof reclining in a tent. Maroof thanked the man for the lentils, ate the entire bowl, and then motioned to one of the genie's sons, in the form of, let's call him a servant, and the man filled the bowl with gold and jewels. Maroof said that he was the son-in-law of the king, and they had gotten in a disagreement but the king sent him these riches to be reconciled. When the peasant wanted, he could come visit Maroof at any time in the capital. With that, Maroof's people packed everything up and headed home. We'll see Maroof snatch defeat from the jaws of victory, but that will, once again, be right after this. Every year, one thing is always predictable. Postage costs go up. Stamps.com gives you crazy discounts for up to 89% off USPS and UPS services, so your business will barely notice the change. Stamps.com has been indispensable for over 1 million businesses just like yours. It's like your own personal post office. No lines, no traffic, no waiting. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com code PROGRAM.
So, you kind of nailed it, the vizier said to Maruf. He would be honest with the man. He always thought Maruf was a two-bit con man and a liar. But he proved the vizier wrong. Kind of. Maruf Grant, wow, this wine was good. Strong, too. What was in it? Alcohol, the vizier said, and poured another drink for Maruf. He had to hand it to Maruf. Paying back the king and everyone in town really made the vizier look like a fool, so much so that he was fired. Maruf was legitimately saddened by that. He always viewed the vizier as a friend, a friend who never believed in him, and who had proposed to his wife before the king arranged for Maruf and her to be wed. The vizier said that the king informed him that he didn't need the man's services. It was just that morning, actually. The vizier went a step too far and questioned Maruf. Like, how does a merchant, a merchant, never sell anything? A real merchant would sit on a piece of fabric for a decade to sell it at a profit. But Maruf just gave it away. He gave everything away. Maruf, now really feeling the drinks, said he sat on a lot of fabric, actually. Pillows. I mean, pants were made of fabric. The vizier said, yeah, because that's exactly what he meant. And what, Maruf was snickering now? Why was Maruf snickering? Maruf said he had a secret. It didn't take long before Maruf was not only telling the vizier about the ring, but handing it over so that the man could inspect it. The vizier rubbed it, the genie came out and did his two out of three ain't bad suggestions, and the bad one this time was seeing if his master wanted to have a king killed. Not a great look, but the vizier, he was kind of into that. This wasn't a Disney's Aladdin-style genie who had any loyalty to his former master, and so when his new master demanded that Maruf be thrown out into the most desolate of deserts to starve to death, the genie immediately complied. On his way, just to salt the wound a little bit, the genie responded to Maruf's tears by saying, honestly, what did he expect when he handed over the ring to the vizier? Maruf didn't deserve the ring. He dropped Maruf in the desert and left him to die. Back at the palace, the king found the vizier in the garden, sipping the wine alone. Oh, what? What happened to Maruf? Did their plan work? Did the vizier figure out the source of the merchant's wealth? The vizier smiled. Yes, yes he did. Also, bye. The king found himself in the middle of the desolate desert. The genie, on the way, said he didn't really know the guy and didn't have any particular admonishments. Sorry, though, about the company. Oh, hey, Dad, Maruf called out when the king landed. In the kingdom, the vizier was taking his seat on the throne. Instead of trying to hide his bald-faced power grab, he told the generals that that's exactly what it was. He had a genie, and he had thrown the previous king and his heir into a desert from which they would never return. If the generals and their men didn't want the same thing to happen to them, they would capitulate and support his coup. They did, and now he was the king. Now, power reveals who you really are. And the vizier, well... He had proposed to the princess, and she had rejected him. Now, though, he was the king, and yeah, he sent her word to prepare herself, because he would be arriving at her room that evening, and, well, 
you know. She tried to say that the law provided her with some time after losing her husband before she could marry again, and the vizier only laughed. He just took over the kingdom in a genie-leg coup. Laws didn't really matter all that much to him. She would be ready tonight. And she was. The vizier wasn't quite as suspicious as he should have been when he arrived at the princess's room, and she was wearing all of her finery, with her servants having laid out dinner and drinks. She said she was so sad, she was hoping that he had killed her father and husband. That would make the remarriage process all that easier. His hand flew instinctively to the ring. Oh, he could do that. No problem. The princess breathed. Good. They were still alive. The vizier wanted to jump right to things, but the princess recoiled. She told him not to misinterpret things. She was into the vizier, just... She wasn't down with an audience? The vizier turned and laughed. Oh, him? He was the genie. He was under the vizier's control and the servant of the ring. He was protecting the vizier's life. It, he was cool. He would just stand there and watch in a non-creepy way. She said maybe, but she wasn't cool with him. You know, watching. The vizier chuckled. Fair enough. He summoned the genie back to the ring. Dunya, the princess, said, what if the pair got in the things and the genie came back out? The vizier rolled his eyes. Oh my gosh. All right, all right. He took the ring off and set it on the table. Could they now, please? Before he could even turn, the back of his head said an unwelcome hello to Dunya's foot when she kicked him in the back of the head. Before she even confirmed he was unconscious, she rolled, scooped up the ring, and rubbed it as she put it on, commanding the genie that emerged to put this man into the depths of the dungeon, fetter him, basically make sure he doesn't move ever again. After she returned her husband and father, they hugged and thanked Dunya for saving them, and then the king held out his hand. He would take the genie's ring and safeguard it. Dunya said, no, sorry. The king smiled, of course, of course. It belonged to Maruf, Dunya's husband. Maruf nodded and held out his open hand. Dunya shook her head. Oh, absolutely not. She said, of the three of them, she was the only one who hadn't been captured and she had actually saved them all. Her father would resume being king and she and her husband would be his heirs, but Dunya would hold on to the ring because, frankly, she was better at this than either of them. And this is completely in the original. Both of the men were furious, but couldn't argue with her reasoning and didn't want to try to take the ring from her, mainly because they loved and respected her, also because of the burly genie that followed her around. She said that if they wanted anything for the kingdom or themselves, they could ask her, but she would be the ring's owner and the master of the genie. And she was. Maruf was appointed as the vizier, though, I mean, a stone might have been a more qualified advisor, and not even a particularly articulate stone. Still, Maruf was kept safely from actual power. Even five years later, when the king died, and Dunya appointed Maruf as the king himself, they conceived a child, an heir, and the pair lived happily ever after. For one year, then Dunya got sick and died, and Shahrazad stopped her story. She was sorry. Was the sultan crying? The man said it was just so sad. She saved him, her husband. She saved everyone. 
She loved him despite everything, and then she died. He couldn't believe it. Shahrazad looked at the three pages of notes she had, where Maruf's first wife, Fatima, found him and begged to be let back into his life, but tried to steal the ring, only to be killed by his son with Dunya. Maruf then remarried, when the plowman actually came to town and brought his daughter along. That kind of muddled things a bit. She tossed the notes aside and nodded. She took a deep breath. Here we go. She looked the salt in the eyes. That's it. She was finished. He wiped the snot from his nose with a snort and dried his eyes. She finished. What? With the story? The big story? She nodded. Yeah. They had been doing this for a thousand nights. She loved him, but she wouldn't keep living like this. It was now up to him. If he wanted to kill her, the wife he professed his love for and the mother of his children, she would die with her head held high. Oh no, no, I don't want to kill you, the sultan said. Shahrazad nodded. So be it, but he would have to tell their children about it, and they would have to witness her at he didn't want to? No, not at all, the sultan said. The relief that washed over her was quickly engulfed in rage. Wait, so, okay, how long had he known he wasn't going to have her executed in the morning? The sultan said, eh, about two and a half years, maybe? Then he froze. That was the wrong answer. You mean to say I've lived in literal fear for my life unnecessarily for two and a half years? The sultan laughed. Come on. She had to have felt the connection they had. That she was going to be fine. She said no. He was very capricious and unpredictable. The sultan said, yeah, that, that sounds like him. You know, he didn't even know why they were getting into a fight over this. She was going to live. She didn't even say thank you. I am not thanking you for not murdering me, Shahrazad replied. In the original, yeah, she did thank him, but I'm not having her thank him because you shouldn't thank people for not murdering you, especially your spouse. That's like really basic relationship stuff. All the same, she was safe, and she and the Sultan did love each other. The Sultan made a general apology to all the people whose loved ones he had murdered when he married all those women before. His bad. They forgave him, definitely out of choice, and not because he was an all-powerful medieval monarch. It took Shahrazad a little while, but she eventually forgave the sultan, and the stories continued. Shahrazad and the sultan lived a long and happy life together, and Shahrazad went down into legend as the person who saved not only herself, but maybe hundreds of women from the violence of a confused and angry king. the story this week. We will, of course, be back in 1001 Nights eventually. We've only actually told a handful of the stories, and there are still some good ones in there. If you're looking for something else to listen to, Fictional's back with a surprise host this week, and there are about four new episodes of Best of the Worst, since I last mentioned it. That's our podcast where we basically do a Creature of the Week segment with ridiculous heroes and villains from comic book history, and also have serious sponsors sponsoring serious products that definitely aren't just Carissa and I making up fake ads for sci-fi items. 
Links for Best of the Worst and Fictional are in the show notes. The creature this week is Irusan, the king of the cats. And yes, we have talked about a king of the cats previously on this podcast, Catsith. But Catsith is the Scottish king of the cats. Irusan is the Irish king of the cats. And very much not as chill as his Scottish counterpart. You know, cats can be touchy. Our cat, Tomato, gets eye infections whenever he's stressed out by change. I didn't pet our cat Apple when she sat next to me in bed last month, and now she sleeps in the basement. So it's not a big stretch to think that a cat's annoyance could lead to murder. You see, a famous poet named Sen Khan wanted eggs. The problem? No eggs. The mice had gotten to them. Spoken as someone who also writes for a living, we have very few real-life skills, but the poet decided to put his writing skills to work when he wrote slash sang a scathing satire of cats. They were slacking on the job hunting mice. They don't come when you call. Sometimes they scratch when you pet them on the tummy. Who needs them? And then he immediately called the king because he needed warriors to surround him because Irusan, the king of the cats, was on his way. Cats have great hearing, by the way. Now, Irusan, who lived in a mountain cave, just wanted to turn the poet into his scratching post and be done with it. But the legion of strays that lived with him said that they wanted to join in. So Irusan the cat the size of a cow, bounded over the land and knocked the human warriors aside like bowling pins. He snatched up the poet and put the man on his back so he could carry him back to the cave so all the cats could take a bite. The poet initially thought that he could win over the king of the cats with his words, and so that's what he did. He talked about how graceful the cat's stride and jump was, but the cat wasn't having any of it. So the poet freaked out and prayed to God to save him. And... God did. Kind of. A local saint named Kieran happened to hear the prayer and also happened to be by a forge. He pulled a fiery hot length of iron, prayed for God to guide his hand, and threw the metal with the tongs. And it hit. The king of the cats howled. It was dead, and the poet was saved. And mad. I don't personally really get this next part, but the poet brushed himself off and found the saint. Seriously? The saint was just going to do that to him? The saint said the poet cried out to God. The saint was helping. The poet said, oh, and, and you're God now? What if that line, me freaking out, was part of the poem, my performance? The saint said that was ridiculous. He was going to get eaten by a giant cat. And wait, what was the poet writing? The poet, having learned absolutely nothing, looked up from the start of his scathing satire of the saint. Oh, he would see. That's it for this week. Myths and Legends is by Jason and Carissa Weiser. Our theme song is by Broke for Free, and the Creature of the Week music is by Steve Combs. There are links to even more music in the show notes. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next time.